leaders. What keeps you up at night? Welcome to The Sweet Spot, the podcast series that expands the traditional term of what a boss is to tackle some of the most important issues in business. From business as usual and growing your market to everyday leadership issues or handling one in 100 year events, we aim to provide ongoing inspiration and education for CEOs, founders, management, shareholders, and leaders of every stripe. The sweet spot is the future of work and business. Hi, my name is Laura Eyre, and on today's C-Sweet Spot, I speak to Dominic Dowding, an experienced chief executive and company director whose career has spanned multiple countries, industries, and world-leading developments. Dom's particular area of expertise is as an agent of change and business transformation, where resilience is key when working with complex businesses and multiple levels of stakeholders. Currently based in Christchurch, Dom works with organisations and company directors in multiple international markets to provide insights into how to diversify while balancing commercial and community objectives. Her current projects include working with the Dunedin Casino, serving as its CEO to help transform the entertainment venue with a brand overhaul and community engagement programme, Dom is also working on a high-profile development project involving the education sector, which is set to put New Zealand on the global stage. Well, thank you for joining me today, Dom. Before we do get started, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, including your experience as a young girl in Barbados and being sent to a boarding school in England at the age of eight, and how this has helped to shape your career journey? Um, Great. Well, nice to see you, Laura. Um, my grandfather was a prolific um, property investor as well as a business investor, so he had many businesses. So um, from a young girl, I was basically trained by my grandfather to be in business. And um, and everything was going fantastically. Granddad was taking me to board meetings to see how dysfunctional my family was at them and all the rest of it. And then Daddy came home one day and said, I've got good news and bad news. You're off to boarding school. So needless to say, I thought it was great because I was going to London. But then I found out I was in boarding school and it was hell for a year. And then Dad sent a telex and I ended up moving to Canada. So I spent most of my formal education in Canada and I grew some of my businesses in Canada. So. Yes. Fantastic. What an enviable enviable story of your upbringing. (laughs) That's incredible. And through your career, you've worn so many different leadership hats in various industries and different capacities. Uh, What do you think the role of a leader has done over the years to change and in the past decade or so and why or why not has it changed? Um, I'm finding leadership as a topic really interesting because some people are innate um, leaders and some people are learning to be leaders, which is fine, you know. But I think when we get too prescriptive, it becomes less authentic. And I think that the one thing I've always learned is having a family dynamic, a a feeling where people feel a sense of belonging, a feeling where people feel that the leader is engaged and willing to pull up their sleeves. Um, We can't be friends to everybody in leadership, let's be honest. Sometimes we have to make the hard calls on people. But at the end of the day, I think a good leader is somebody who is confident in their ability who gives very clear direction, who brings the team with them on the journey rather than basically hides in their office and doesn't engage and and creates fear-based type cultures. You know, I'm not into that at all. Culture is very Very, important, isn't it? It's it's finding that balance. And I find that when you get people actually seeing change is going in a positive way and you're regenerating a business because my specialty is going in and troubleshooting businesses and turning them around. Um, 
all of a sudden there's an excitement that starts happening and then the business is flourishing because everybody's feeling that, hey, I'm actually now part of something bigger rather than I'm just a number who cares about me. Nobody does. So why should I bother? You know? Yeah, exactly. It's not about ticking boxes on a journey. And, you know, you've managed various transformational projects over the years. What has been some of your biggest learnings from these? Oh, my God, where do I start? Um, I think the first one is a lot of people go in and want to affect change. You know, everybody says, oh, you've got to have your 90-day plan and everybody's changing the structure in 30 days or 60 days, you know, depending on how, you know, aggressive they are. I don't believe in that. I believe that you need to really understand the temperature gauge of the culture. You need to really find out who are your winners and who are the people that you're going to have to really develop or performance manage. And then once you've uh, identified your strategy and you actually know where the ship needs to go, that's when you start implementing the change. Um, The second thing I would say is communication is a really big thing. You really need to communicate across all levels of your organization and also with your stakeholders and your, your external parties that you actually want as customers. So the those would be my two. Mm. Mm. Such vital points. And you, you mentioned um, the temperature gauge. If we do have a leader that perhaps hasn't quite got the right read of that, you know, what would you suggest a leader does to deal with any backlash or controversy? Well, I saw a situation once where basically this particular company, which I won't say what it was, but they fired 49 of their Uh, frontline managers and made them redundant in a restructure. So the entire thought of that organization was decimated over time. Now, what happened is the leader brought in all the people that they knew from Wellington and in came into the company, but they didn't understand the mechanics of that company. They didn't understand the stage of the life cycle of that company. And basically, It was more about personality change than it was about what's best for organization. And I think we lose that in New Zealand. Um, We don't concentrate enough on what are we trying to do with this company instead of thinking of just today, but where do we want to actually grow it to and then work backwards and then make sure we have the right governance, make sure we have the right CEO, make sure we have the right management team and so on down the line. So that's kind of... Yeah, my opinion on that one. Yeah, Yeah. no, it makes sense. It it does come back to, you know, that team dynamic, but also leading with the vision, hey, having a really strong future focus. Do you have any tips for executives who may be struggling with a tough situation such as that? You know, they haven't really clarified what that vision is. They've had to axe 49 staff. What would your advice to those executives be? Well, first of all, I think that the, the chasm that leadership needs to cross is whether they do what they're told or whether they stand for what they believe in. Because I think, and, and it's a quite, it's a nuance, isn't it? Because you don't want to go against your board, but sometimes your board isn't right. And it's about you, how you sell that vision to your board to get them across the line. And I think that as leaders, sometimes we acquiesce to the strongest voice and we shouldn't. So to me, it's about being determined, communicate with your board, get your board on side, even if you have to start picking them off one by one to explain why this is important to the future. That's what I would suggest to do. Yeah, it does come to communication. I think you've answered my next question quite well because, you know, what would your approach be to showing leadership when things go wrong other than communicating and picking off one person on the board if they don't quite get it? I guess with a wider team, what would that approach Um, look like for you? I've been on a couple of projects that were severely stressed. And I think that there's a couple of things. First of all, I think the leader has to, no matter how much they're crumbling, and 
And this is another fallacy. We sit in CE positions or in ownership positions of company, but sometimes you are under severe stress because things aren't going right. But the one thing I would say is the first step is you have to remain calm in the storm. You have to breathe and you've got to show resilience to your staff. So on the outside, you need to appear like, hey, I've got this. We're going to get through this. But also communicate authentically what's really going on instead of hiding it. If you communicate in a way that the staff don't feel threatened that they might lose their jobs or that something huge is going to happen to them, then I think that you can navigate through the crisis. The second thing I would do is turn around and really, you know, basically list your risk and list all the opportunities and all the threats to achieving a mitigation of those risks and then pick them off one by one. Like you have to almost go into calm logical and just critically analyze and overanalyze and keep yourself calm through the storm. Mm. Such good advice. And especially when someone's starting out on that journey, and it's really good to preempt those issues so that you do have a really good battle plan even before they yeah, start to and arise. I think the other problem as leaders, we're not good at finding a mentor to just hear you out because sometimes when those crises happen, you're completely left in the eye of the storm because let's be really blunt, sometimes boards get really nervous about their own reputational risk. You know, everybody starts running for cover and it's the CE who's taking the flack. So, so it's really important to have somebody that you 100% trust just to give you an alternate view because sometimes that does help you reset and re-engage in what do you have to do. And then it motivates you to actually get through your, you know, your crisis or your event. Yeah, no, very, very good advice there. And, you know, on that journey, sometimes people don't tick all those boxes or they might hit a few stumbling blocks. What are some of those things that leaders usually get or could get wrong when they're trying to manage an issue or crisis? I think um, I've seen people get so stressed that they're abusive or they start losing the plot or they become very aggressive. Um, you know, stress is, is quite an interesting subject. And I don't think we talk a lot about the amount of stress that a CE can be under, under a myriad of different reasons. You know, whether it's the governance board not being the right board for the right stage of the life cycle, whether it's a crisis and they're not being supported by their board members or their people. Um, you know, so it's really, really important that you just keep very salient, very calm and get yourself through it, you know? Mm. That is absolutely vital because I suppose when you've got an issue on the boil and someone's not thinking rationally, that can cause other issues and things can start well, to really and wobble, I think there's they? a really big subject here again. I think as leaders, when you're in that crisis, you can't help but take it personally, right? You start to, like... Uh, look at my career. I mean, I've had lots of success and then I've had a couple of failures and they really derailed me because you're overanalyzing what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? And then you're looking externally for validation. And it's like a really vicious um, trap. And we're all human. I mean, this is the one thing that nobody seems to understand. Like, essentially, we're all human underneath and we just need to know that it wasn't our fault or that we didn't overthink this or we didn't do something wrong. So, yeah, it's just, it's really interesting. I find the whole dynamic of the game of business is interesting and especially in leadership. Mm. It's very true. And I wholeheartedly believe that you have to see the human yeah. underneath yeah. all of this, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
in I guess in your view, if a company has come up against a major reputational issue, how do you think an organisation can come back um, from that? I'll give you an example of that. At Continental um, Eastern, we had a real problem in the marketplace. We had a terrible reputation. People were saying we were the worst airline. Our food was, you know, crap. Our, our online performance was terrible. We kept losing bags. So I ended up talking to Frank Lorenzo, who was the owner of the company at the time, and I said, you know what, we just need to own this and let's build a campaign where we just own it. We just stand up and we say, yep, we're really crap at doing all these things, but you know what? Fly us and we're going to show you how we're going to turn this around. And we did. And we got all our staff together by satellite all over the world and we made sure everybody was on board. And then we just over-serviced and tried to really maximize that experience. So coming back to your question, I think it's really important to front foot it. There's times when it's not appropriate. When the media is involved, you need to take very, you know, expert advice as to whether you should or whether you shouldn't, depending on, you know, the dynamic of the situation. But I would prefer to just say, yeah, we've made a mistake. Now here's how we're going to correct it. Give me some time. You know, it's not an ideal situation, but we'll get through this. Right. And show confidence that you are going to get through it and you have a plan. That's so important. important. That goes back to your point of authenticity. You know, that should run through every line of communication. Totally. And I don't know about you, but you meet these people and they're really famous, but they're not authentic. Like, you know that they're brand me, you know, and I just rather be myself. Like, I'm not going to change myself for anybody. And and I'm quite comfortable with who I am. So, you know, I I think that when you're authentic, people gravitate more to you because they know that you're trustworthy. They know that you're reliable. They know that you're going to execute. Execute. But more importantly, they know that you're going to tell them the truth. And this is something in business we don't do enough of. We try not to tell people what they don't want to hear. But sometimes we have to say, hey, look, I know you don't want to hear this. But in my opinion, this is what this business should be doing, right? And try and work it through on a negotiated level, you know, or mediative level. Yeah, yeah exactly. No one can fault you on that. And I guess from your perspective... What would the greatest difference between a financial and reputational issue for a company be? Do you know what? I used to think it was financial because, you know, God, if you did anything wrong, and especially if you have a shareholding type company, a public company, that's crucial, right? But I think reputation nowadays is far more important in a lot of ways. Um, Strategically, you need to actually know and communicate where you're going, and especially if you're listed. Um, From a board governance perspective, it's super important you have the right board at the right time of the life cycle in the business so that they're also leading the charge and talking the same song sheet. And then when you start getting into the CEO, same difference, you know, you need the right CEO if you're growing or I have a build, hold, harvest, which I learned in university. But that's a very relevant point. You need certain CEOs for build and hold and you need other CEOs for harvest and divest, right? So, um, yeah, uh, they're together, but they're quite different. I look at finance more as internal because sometimes, you know, I'm not in a public company, so it's more a private company. So um, we need to manage that risk. But reputation is actually what drives your revenues and what drives your brand recognition in the marketplace and brings customers to you and that don't cost you a lot of money if you have the right brand and the right positioning. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's very true. And to be authentic. 
and I guess, to be authentic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. You know, that runs through everything. It's central. It's a big one for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in broad terms, what are some of the factors you think make a resilient leader and why is resilience so important? I mean, this has run through your yeah. career yeah. so greatly. So what is it about being a resilient leader and why, why is I it so important? I think the first thing is you have to respect your staff. And by respecting your staff, you have to be truthful with them. Right. So I communicate the good, the bad and the ugly. And if they want to come and talk to me, that's what they talk. I try not to be, um, what do you call it? In, uh, I don't like to make them worried about their jobs. You know, like during COVID is a prime example. I made sure that they all understood we were doing the best we could, you know, but we were going to have to make some tough decisions. So everybody was on that journey with me. And I did have to make some people redundant, you know. So again, being truthful, being honest, be respectful. Um, resilience is about strength. You have to be so strong to put up with storms or anything that might try and discombobulate you. And I think a friend of mine in Sydney said the best thing to me. He said, what people say, think, or feel about you is none of your business, right? And you've got to take that personal out and actually just concentrate on, I'm a leader. I have to drive this organization through change or through resilience or through whatever it might be. I need to keep very calm in the eye of this strategy, whatever it might be, whether in crisis or not in crisis. And more importantly, I have to show up and show that I'm actually there doing it every day. And I'm walking my talk and not just talking my talk. Yeah. Yeah, such a good point. Showing up and being that leader that people aspire to, just take that edge off their day-to-day stress as well. And you, you hinted at this earlier where stress can have such a severe impact on you when you're dealing with a challenge. I guess how much does your mentality and psychological state influence your ability to lead well? Do you well? know what? I, I've been in the eye of the storm, as I said to you, and I was shocked. Like, I'm really strong, and I proved that during this period. But the psychological damage that it does after you leave the the job or the project or whatever you've been on is quite it's a slow creeping giant because at the time you don't think you're really bad. You know you're not quite right because you've been under so much stress for such a long or prolonged time. But then eventually when you quit, you almost go through this really grieving and then beat up stage. And and I would like, honestly, any leader who says they haven't felt like this after a bad experience with an organization is just lying, you know? So, I think it's very important and mental health, I think, is super important because we don't think we are, but sometimes we can be depressed, sometimes we can feel stuck, sometimes we can feel that we're not doing good enough. And I think overachievers are people who fear failure, right? So we're even tougher on ourselves. So again, you know, doing courses, but you know, here's another thing I don't believe like um, people like the IOD prepare people for these sorts of things, whether it's reputation or whether it's stress under duress, you know, and we need more of those sorts of conversations amongst directors and also amongst directors and their CEOs, you know. Such a good point. And, you know, you said earlier, and I wholeheartedly believe in this, we are human and you do bring that human side of yourself to work. You don't have a career personality and at home personality. You do bring part of yourself. So that stress does hit you personally. Um, Aside from that, you know, you've transformed so many different organisations. What 
are some of those key things that you think need to be in place before you can even start on that that transformation journey? Um, I think first and foremost, I always, two months before I take the job, do a deep dive on the company. So I'm asking for everything before I walk in that door because I want to mentally prepare myself for what am I seeing through their business plans, their strategies, their books. Sometimes I don't even get that. You know, I have to start from scratch. Um, another thing I really do is I interview every single person, literally from the top to the bottom, to from the bottom to the top. And then I go and I interview customers and get their response to how they feel about our business. And then what I do is I feedback. So I feedback to the board, first and foremost, in a confidential setting, and then I feedback to the staff. And then what I do is I do a series of surveys. Once I have all that information, I actually then am prepared to start working up What do I think we need to do? What are the opportunities for this business? How much do I think I can grow it by? If I can't, I'll be really honest with the board. If I can, I'm saying this is the level of investment I'm going to need, and off we go. Mm. And then I make change. Yeah, no, such a great way to understand the dynamic of the business before you can actually start to initiate any change. Um, I guess out of all of these transformation projects you've worked on, what have been some of the most rewarding projects you've worked on this far and um, why? I My first one that was really unusual was APEC. I absolutely enjoyed that experience because I am an entrepreneur and I was thrown in with these mad genius science uh, scientists who are all about renewable energies, which I knew nothing about. And I'm probably, you know, I drive a car, so I'm considered not in vogue. And that was fascinating, bringing a commercial nuance to the discussions of the 21 nations that make up APEC um, and their representatives. Um, So that was really cool. And I went all around the APEC region and and learned about all the issues of developing economies, undeveloped economies, and and their uh, need for energy and and health and resources, right? Um, The second one I was very proud of is I believe that the um, Alexandra Park project was a Great project. I'm very proud of the design of the village, and and I think that was a fantastic project. Um, it's you know it had its issues, but hey, it's a good project as far as what it stands today. Um, and then I'm super excited about the. Um, little project that I'm doing in Christchurch, which isn't so little, and but we just can't release that yet. And it's this one's very cool and my passion, and I've had this passion since 2008, so it's great. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. And you've really amassed such a, a good collection of skills and experiences along your journey. Um, I guess just thinking, summing up all of what we've discussed today, what, you know, you've been on such an interesting leadership and career journey. What do you wish more leaders knew earlier in their journey? Um, oh, God, where do I start? I think what we need to really understand, if I could just take a minute, is the old model of corporate life was based on a military regime. That's what basically business was founded, you know, founded on. Um, you have your general, which is the CEO, and then you have your lieutenants and so on and so forth. I think nowadays we have to be a little bit less military. We still need structure. So I would say that the first and foremost thing is that nobody teaches you that a more structured environment, even though you can still have laughs, you can still get the job done, but if you have structure then you'll actually be able to execute faster and you'll everybody knows their place, basically. And then they know that they can be fun and having fun in the environment. Um, the other thing that I don't think people teach you is they don't teach you the dynamic between the board and the CEO. 
And I think that's, you know, we talk a lot in IOD about that, and, and they certainly do a great um, job at that. But we don't talk about the interpersonal relationships enough. And I think that's very important because I think that some people think that being on a board is a place to which they can dominate or drive very aggressively their own opinions, whereas really it's supposed to be a collaborative environment of both the CEO and the board working in harmony, singing from the same song sheet to you know, achieve the goals that they have mutually decided on. And I don't think CEOs get taught that you know, before they start taking on a leadership-type role. For middle management, I think that a lot of people have this impression that once you hit middle management, you're just going to sit there and delegate. Well, that's actually not leadership. You know, leadership is leading from the front. It's about showing your force that you're behind them, that you understand what they do, that you're intimately aware of it. You're willing to jump in in a crisis and you're willing to help them. And that in itself builds loyalty and it builds trust and it builds people wanting to do more for you. So, yeah, those are kind of my key ones. Hmm. Thank you so much, Dom. I think this has been such an insightful conversation that so many people who are either in their leadership journey or just emerging through that can take so much away from this, I think. And you've got so many great shared experiences. Thank you so much for taking Thanks, the time Laura. to speak to me today, great. Dom. If our listeners do want to learn a bit more about you and follow you on your journey, where can they find you? Is LinkedIn yeah, the best probably. place for them yes. to find you? Yes. I mean, yeah. And they can just find Dominic, Dominic Dowding on, yeah. on LinkedIn. And I'm more than happy to help anybody, and especially those leaders that feel that they're in crisis and don't know who to talk to. I'll be 0800 for them. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Thank you very okay, much, no Dom. Problem. Thank you, Laura. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please like, review or share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn under Alexander PR or follow the links in the show notes below. Until next time, thank you for listening.